Hello and welcome to What's the Story Ghost. I'm your host, Annette. And I'm Stephen. And today we are on episode 14. Steve. Yes? What can you tell me about Marie Delphine McCarthy? Not a whole lot. I don't know who this <laughs> McCarthy woman is. It turns out she's from Ireland. Sorry, her dad came from Ireland. I think her mum was French, but her dad oh. was Irish. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so today's story, I will put all the sources into the description on the episode, and we'll crack on. What's the woman's real name? It's not McCarthy. No, she was McCarthy, and then she got married. Two. Several people, actually. We'll get into that. Oh, carry on. Okay. Uh, so I've tried something different with this story, so bear with me. I'm trying something. If you like it, that's great. If you don't, uh, that's cool, too, because it took me a week to do it. <laughs> um, so we'll crack on. You have to say your thing. Exit jingle? No, not that thing. Okay, crack on. <laughs> okay. Close your eyes for a moment. You're on a walk through the French Quarter in New Orleans. It's 26 degrees with 82% humidity and virtually no breeze. Overall, a splendid day. You pass a restaurant and upon reading the sign, you see that they serve West African cuisine. The aroma intoxicates you. You curiously glance at the menu, and now you would kill for a plate of yassa. Cabbage and carrots in an onion and garlic sauce served with rice and couscous. But you continue to walk. You hear bells on bicycles ring as they pass, and cyclists wave politely to say excuse me, and continue cycling at a leisurely pace. It's not a special day, no one's in a hurry to get anywhere. New Orleans is just chill this morning. And then you arrive. You're standing on the corner of Governor Nichols Street and Royal Street. 1140 Royal Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. Truly a mansion of luxury. With stunningly tall windows, you can almost imagine the amount of light they let in. Swept around the building on the first floor is a beautifully designed wrought iron balcony adorned with flower pots hanging over the side. You continue your walk to the Royal Street side of the home and you reach the front door. A long porch area with beautifully designed mouldings and a barrel vault ceiling and all behind a wrought iron gate. You reach out your hand to the gate and wrap your fingers around one of the bars and you stand a while. And then you begin to hear music. It's hard to make out what instruments are playing, let alone the tune over the tens of people laughing and chatting over the clinking of champagne glasses, over the shuffling of feet on the floor as they dance. And then suddenly, a cold chill runs down your spine and a feel of unease. You can taste something. It's sweet. It nearly tastes like honey. And then you feel a tingling, like ants on fire on your skin, and you quickly recoil your hand from the wrought iron bar and step back away from the entrance of the home. You curse your vivid imagination. But even if you didn't know the stories behind it, I think you'd still feel all the residual energy left behind in the LaLaurie mansion. Marie Delphine McCarty was born on March 19, 1787, in New Orleans during the Spanish colonial period. Not much is said about Delphine's youth, but given that her parents were both two established members of the community, one can only assume her childhood was more than comfortable. She lived with her parents and four siblings until June 11, 1800, when at the age of 13, Delphine was married to Don Ramon, who was a high-ranking Spanish royal officer. 
1804, while pregnant with their first child, Delphine and Don Ramon were traveling to Spain. But while en route to Madrid, Don Ramon suddenly died in Havana. Delphine gave birth to their daughter, but days later. Widowed and raising her daughter, nicknamed Borquita, by herself, Delphine returned to New Orleans. She wasn't alone for long, though. In June 1808, Delphine married Jean Blanc. Jean held many titles, including a prominent banker, a merchant, a lawyer, and a legislator. Whether Delphine married for love or not, she most definitely married well. Jean went on to purchase a property for Delphine at 409 Royal Street. The home would later be known as Villa Blanc. Delphine went on to have four more children with Jean, named Delphine Louise Pauline, Louise Delphine Laure, Delphine Louise Jean, and Jean-Pierre Pauline. Delphine was happy living in her big house with all of her comforts, until just eight years into matrimony, Jean passed away. More than content living as a widow, Delphine stayed that way for nearly 10 years. That is, until she met Leonard Louis Lalaurie, a physician at the time. Delphine originally met Leonard to seek help for one of her daughters who had an issue with her spine. Delphine was absolutely smitten. Though I'm not entirely sure the same can be said for Leonard, as he left New Orleans and only came back home because his brother summoned him back when word got out that Delphine was pregnant with his child. After having a child out of wedlock, the two married in 1828. It was no secret that the marriage was not a happy one. Neighbours would often comment on hearing them argue loudly. November 16, 1832, Delphine petitioned the first judicial district court for a separation from bed and board of her husband, in which Delphine claimed that her husband treated her in such a manner as to render their living together unsupportable, which is madness considering the actions she takes that soon come to light, but I digress. These claims were confirmed by her son and two daughters from previous marriages. The separation does not seem to have been permanent, as Dr. Lalaurie was present at the Royal Street House on April 10th, 1834, the day of the fire, but we'll come back to that. Despite the unhappy marriage, Delphine was fine. She was notorious for being an independent woman. She had her businesses, wealth, and she insisted on managing her own affairs, including purchasing a property in 1831. Oh, how she loved this home. On the outside, it was peaceful and a glorious example of wealth and social standing. It was pure New Orleans elegance and class. Delphine purchased the prime piece of French Quarter real estate for $33,000 in 1831. That's approximately $1.1 million today, although today the home is worth two or three times that. The year after the home was bought, Delphine made some big changes, making it one of the tallest structures in the French Quarter. As was the custom in New Orleans at the time, enslaved people of colour were bought to run a household. They were kept in attached quarters. But the Lalaurie slaves were kept in horrid conditions, even by the standards of slave treatment, and usually were half-starved. Twelve of Delphine's slaves died for unknown reasons, and by 1833 it was becoming harder for Delphine to hide her sadistic side. These twelve deaths included Bon, a cook, and laundress, and her four children, Juliette, age 13, Florence, age 10, Jules, age 6, and Leontine, age 2. Bon herself was only 30. There were multiple accounts as to the heinous treatment Delphine performed on her slaves. 
Harriet Martineau, the prominent 19th century English writer who visited the city in 1833, wrote that Delphine's treatment was so horrible and well known that she was visited by lawyers on multiple occasions. The local attorney went to the mansion to investigate allegations of mistreatment of Delphine's slaves, but he found no wrongdoing. But in one incident, bystanders saw a 12-year-old girl named Leah fall to her death. Delphine had chased the girl around the room with a whip to punish her for accidentally tugging her hair while brushing it. Little Leah fell to her death from the roof of the mansion in an attempt to avoid being whipped by Delphine. Some say she lost her footing. Others say Delphine pushed her. And then there's the assumption that the poor girl jumped. Leah was buried behind the mansion grounds. But Delphine was finally found guilty of cruelly abusing her slaves and forced to forfeit her nine remaining bonds people. The slaves were taken away and scheduled to be sold at a public auction, but Delphine convinced a relative to purchase the enslaved workers and return them to the mansion. The torment continued as though nothing had happened in the Lurie household until April 10th, 1834. The fire broke out in the kitchen. One of Delphine's slaves, a 70-year-old woman who had been chained to the stove as punishment, started the fire in an attempt to take her own life, rather than endure one more moment under Delphine. The fire spread quickly but not fast enough before the police and local fire brigade got it under control. While Delphine was busy trying to save her furniture from the fire, officers tended to the old woman who was chained to the stove by her ankle. Later, when the fire had more or less subsided, the old lady confessed to arson, claiming she had intended to take her own life and Delphine's house of horrors with her. She admitted that she feared that she would inevitably be brought to the upper area in the mansion, for the poor souls who go there don't return. Neighbours involved in bringing the blaze under control wanted to help authorities with an evacuation of the mansion. When they found the door to the slaves' quarters locked, Delphine and her husband refused to hand over the key. Rescuers broke down the door into the slaves' quarters and encountered a truly gruesome sight. They discovered the slaves, covered in scars and held in place by multiple heavy chains. Among the poor enslaved victims, many torture devices were found, such as pinchers, whips and heavy iron collars with sharpened points. But that's not even remotely the worst of what they saw. I just can't get through the sentence without feeling physically ill. And we haven't even gotten to the attic where the most truly gruesome acts took place. Of the nine slaves Delphine had bought back, the skeletons of two were afterward found and the other seven could barely be recognised as human. One of those who entered the premises was Judge Jean-Francois Canonche. When he questioned Delphine's husband about those enslaved on the property, he was told in an insolent manner that some people had better stay home rather than come to others' houses to dictate laws and meddle in other people's business. But please don't assume that all the La Lauries felt the same about how to treat the people who cooked and cleaned and cared for them. Delphine's daughters clearly, unlike their parents, did not share the same love of sadistic tendencies. In fact, Delphine would often beat her daughters when they attempted to feed the enslaved people of the home. When news of the absurd treatment of the slaves was discovered, an angry mob made their way to the residence, as they feared Delphine would face no repercussions because of her status and wealth. So they attacked the thing she loved the most, her mansion. As stated in the April 11 edition of the New Orleans Bee, the local citizens demolished and destroyed everything upon which they could lay their hands. 
The sheriff and his officers were called upon to disperse the crowd, but by the time the mob left, the property had sustained major damage, with scarcely anything remaining but the walls. Whatever the source of their shock, they seemed hell-bent on punishing Lalaurie for her overzealous application of an already extreme form of punishment. But given the so-called threat of enslaved people rebelling against their plantation owners, it's likely the tortures they inflicted on their own enslaved people were no different than the tortures inflicted by Delphine. I'm trying to take into account how stories can be embellished over time. I just can't do it with this one. People who came from money and had a godlike complex could very well have behaved like this towards other human beings. They just didn't see them as that. So I am pleased to say Delphine was run out of town and died somewhere in Paris. I don't know. I don't care. The original New Orleans mansion occupied by Lalaurie did not survive. The house was burned by the angry mob in 1834 and remained ruined for at least another four years. It was then rebuilt by Pierre Trastor after 1838 and assumed the appearance that it has today, but he only kept it for three months. He was plagued by strange noises, cries and moans in the night and soon abandoned the place. He tried leasing the rooms for a short time, but the tenants only stayed for a few days at most. Finally, he gave up and the house was abandoned. Following this, the home was then used as a school. It had been one of the few mixed schools in the city of New Orleans, but politics during the Reconstruction era were convoluted. And sure enough, soon after, the school was converted into a strictly all-girls African-American primary school. Within a short amount of time, reports of physical assaults came to light. No memoirs exist from this time period, just a scattering of accounts here and there. But what we do know is the young girls would approach their teachers, tears streaming down their faces with their sleeves rolled up. Their forearms were scratched and bruised. Who did this to you? The teachers would demand. And the answer was always the same. <laughs> that woman! But these girls were too young to know about Madame Delphine and the devastating tragedy some decades earlier. Plus, it was unlikely that the teachers were telling six, seven and eight-year-olds about the starvation and immoral torture of slaves some decades before. So were the girls playing tricks on each other or were their claims of some phantom woman attacking them true? Many people claimed to hear screams of agony coming from the empty house at night and saw the apparitions of slaves walking about on the balconies and in the yards. Some stories even claimed that vagrants who had gone into the house seeking shelter were never heard from again. In 1882, an English teacher turned the home into a conservatory of music and fashionable dancing school. All went well for some time, but then things came to a terrible conclusion. A local newspaper apparently printed an accusation against the teacher, claiming some indiscretions with female students just before a grand social event was about to take place in the school. Students and guests shunned the place and the school closed shortly after. A few years later, more strange events. It became the centre of rumours regarding the death of Jules Vigny, the eccentric member of a wealthy New Orleans family. Vigny lived in the house secretly for over 10 years, but then was found dead in a tattered cot in the mansion, apparently living in filth, while hidden away in surrounding rooms was a collection of antiques and treasures. The house was abandoned again until the late 1890s. Landlords quickly picked up old and abandoned buildings to convert them into cheap housing for this new wave of renters coming from Italy during a time of immigration to America. The Lalaurie mansion became just such a house, but for many of the tenants, even low rent was not enough to keep them there. 
When the mansion was an apartment house, several strange events were recorded. Among them was an encounter between an occupant and a naked man of colour in chains who attacked him and then abruptly vanished. Others claimed to have animals slain in the house. Children were attacked by a phantom with a whip. Strange figures appeared wrapped in shrouds. A young mother was terrified to find a woman in elegant evening clothes bent over her sleeping infant. And of course, the ever-present sound of screams, groans and cries that would reverberate through the house at night. It was never easy to keep tenants in the house and finally, after word spread of the strange goings on there, the mansion was deserted once again. The house would later become a bar. The saloon taking advantage of the building's ghastly history was called the Haunted Saloon. The owner knew many of the building's ghostly stories and kept a record of the strange things experienced by patrons. The home was then converted into a furniture store. However, this did not fare so well. The owner first suspected vandals when all of his merchandise was found ruined on several occasions, covered in some sort of dark, stinking liquid. He finally waited one night with a shotgun, hoping the vandals would return. When dawn came, the furniture was all ruined again, even though no one, human anyway, had entered the building. The owner closed the place down. The home is now owned by a Texan oil tycoon and has been since 2013, which is pretty good going considering no one else owned the property for more than a few years. So maybe the house isn't so haunted anymore, or maybe the owner isn't a believer, but the residual energy that must be soaked into those walls gives me the heebie-jeebies. What do you think of that? I think that was very good. <laughs> good. I did that episode in honour of Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. Uh, she played that, that in The Coven. The Coven, American Horror Story. Can I just say just one thing, though? That story nearly killed me to write. Um, aside from the fact that there was so much detail in it, there was so much stuff, like, I mean, heinous stuff. I, I, all the links that I put up go into detail on a lot of things. There's one link in particular at the end. It just goes into so much detail, and I was sick to my stomach reading some of it. Um, I just don't have the stomach to actually say it on the podcast but just if you do want to read more into it it's fantastic absolutely fantastic history that i managed to capture on the on the sources i just couldn't do it here it, it, it's not i'm not the right person to to tell that story but it, it broke me oh, that little girl leah that just killed me running away like you'd rather run off the roof of a building than get whipped by this woman anyway the light stuff first <laughs> i just had to say that bit so you, well we were going to do the part where you asked me who do you think should play but you can't get past Kathy Bates. You, i don't think you could i, I don't think anyone else after, could actually play that part better. if you haven't seen if you haven't seen that uh the coven yeah the coven watch it and like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in it replicates a lot of what you said the yeah. heinous behavior yeah, yeah. oh but if you if you hadn't seen it who would you place who would you who would you put there because I'm thinking the Borg Queen. Oh my God, now who's geeky and nerdy? Do you remember the girl who played the Borg Queen? She also played the prince's mum in wow, one of those Christmas Hallmark movies that you can't stand that I love and I live for at Christmas time. Do you remember the girl who was in I Zombie? She's also oh, yes. in that. Oh yeah. So I you do, know, I do, remember do you know the Borg trash. Queen? Yeah. The Borg Queen was in Voyager. I think she'd be. I think that she's Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> <for> <laughs> 
Um, I think she'd be pretty good. I can't actually think of anyone else because I can't get Kathy Bates out of my head. There's no other characters worth... It, it, this is a whole Lillery story, so yeah. there's nobody else. There's only one character. Did there's only know, one position though, going. She wasn't the original intended person for the cast or to cast the role. I don't know what what way you're supposed to say, but she wasn't actually their initial person of choice. Um, I did not know. But I think she just interviewed really well. She felt so passionate about, I suppose, the character. It was their first choice. I never actually found out. I, 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 like, I mean, realistically, would you even give anyone else that information if you cast Kathy Bates yeah. and she did such a good job? Would you actually turn around and go, uh, actually, we were thinking of Kira Knightley? Because then everybody would be like, uh, what? No. New Orleans sounds like a great place to live. New Orleans, I think, would be definitely on my bucket list. Mm. Most definitely. Aside from the fact that I actually looked up the name of the restaurant. I can't pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try but if you walk back up away from Royal Street, there's a restaurant there and they do West African cuisine. And I was like, I'm not very, you know me, I'm very picky with my food. But I was looking through their menu and I read this and I was just like, oh my God, this actually sounds amazing. And I was like, now I'm hungry and I could actually smell it when I was reading it. So the new thing I was trying was to go with a descriptive version. And it's only because I read so much about this story. I was like, I could, I think I could do like a, a descriptive walk through New Orleans. DM us and let us know if you like this new method. <laughs> was okay and if it's not okay that's cool because it took me a week to do so it's a lot of effort if it's actually not working um but it was just weird though because I, I as I was reading it or as I was writing it I was trying to think to myself right okay well what would I do if I was there because somebody lives there so you can't go up and just like press your face up against the window because that's just rude and with no idea where Madame Lillery is now or when she died or where she died there is a gravestone in Paris that's in her maiden name that's the only reason McCarthy. they were able to yeah that's the only reason that they were able to decipher that it was hers because Lalaurie is in it, but her McCarthy name is the one on her gravestone. Because she did, four years after, she did actually think about coming back and she wrote to her brother-in-law and her brother-in-law was like, not a chance, no way, no hope. You need to leave a lot more time now and you need to hope that everyone and anyone who helped with the evacuation or found out, you need to hope that they all die before you come back. You can't come back. You'll you'll get mobbed. I don't. I think her mum was from France, so I don't think France was ever somewhere she wanted to live. But for a very short amount of time, not like Quebec would be in Canada. They were French territory for a lot longer. New Orleans was was under French rule for quite some time, just not long enough for it to actually stick for the language to be. You know the way people in Ingrained Quebec and still, yeah, still people spoken, in Quebec, yeah. Quebec would would speak um, French Canadian. Mm. I think is the their dialect. Yeah. Um. So I think there is a lot of that in New Orleans, but a lot of the tours are based on vampires and voodoo. And I know it's probably not the greatest example, but the coven does actually go into detail. And, you know, they have that woman who plays the, the voodoo queen. And they yeah, have, she's really good. She's so good. In fact, I actually don't know anyone else who could do her part either. Um, she's someone I'd love to cover a story on as well, because there's so much there. But... At the same time, there's also a lot about the coven that they go into. They really embellish, like they really Hollywood the whole thing. Stevie Nicks comes back as a witch in a chair. Yeah, but she's a fabulous shawl, though. And I, I mean, that's that's very important for girls, Stephen. You need to understand that. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed that. It killed me reading through it because, as I said before, in order for me to know what to leave out, I actually have to read it in the first place. And there's some just awful, awful so stuff. So all of her husbands died. Her first husband died en route to Spain, so they never made it to they Spain. They were married. No, there's two. She was married to him. She was. She got married at 13. 
Yeah. And four years later, I think, is when she eventually got pregnant. And there's two accounts. The one I went with was the one that she was with him, because that's the one I saw coming up a lot more. So she was with him and he passed. And then she had the baby a couple of days later. And then there was another account where she wasn't actually with him. She was traveling afterwards because she was currently having the baby. So he passed away while she was having the baby. And obviously then she didn't find out because you know yourself. It's not exactly like you just send a quick text and go, oh, there's no social media. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a little slower for her to find out that he'd actually passed and that she never actually ended up going to Spain. But I only saw that come up once. So I went with whatever one just came up, kind of had a bit more repetition. Um, Her second husband passed away. I think they were married about eight years. Now, far be it for me to, you know, assume anything. But given what she did to the people that were in her home behind closed doors, I don't know if her husband's died of natural causes or like given the fact that the first one she was or wasn't with at the time. But I find it very hard to believe that someone can get married at 13 and do it for love. And apparently when she bought 1140, she did that with the inheritance she got from her two marriages or her two inheritance. So I don't know. If they died of natural causes, I didn't see anything come up to say that it didn't, but I hate her, so I don't care. I'm going to say she did. I'm going to call her out. I'll call you out, Delphine. <laughs> Wouldn't you jump out that window with the door behind us? Oh, there'd be a, a net-shaped hole in the wall. I wouldn't even open the window. There would be no time. It was a good story, though. I think it was good. Definitely. And I, I, I try to keep it, I say age-appropriate, but it's mostly like, you know, can my sister listen? <laughs> she can't listen then I'd be can, just kind of can like, the oh, family okay. scaredy cat listen yeah pretty mm-hmm. much yeah. Um, she's my benchmark that's how I know things are PG or not you know what have you got written down Kathy Bay yeah Oil Tycoon it's... oh yeah yeah oh, he ha- go back yes. go back right and before the Oil Tycoon bought the shop this is the only sensible thing I picked up on there was your man abandoned his shop because he thought it was being vandalised and the furniture was being ripped up and there was a sticky, smelly substance left on it. Now, bear with me. A sticky, smelly substance, and he wasn't sure what it was. And then someone who owns an oil refinery that has byproducts. Oh, these were years apart, though. Years and ah, years, but, and years apart. But I'm talking about Duck Dynasty here. What's that? It's not actually Duck Dynasty. It's like Oil Tycoons and Oil Dynasty. And I haven't yet finished my train of thought. Go! That was it. <laughs> Basically, the oil tycoon was coming on with his waste product and slapping it all over. Oh. And then he, then he just waited a while and bought the place. So you're... Okay, so the way that you... It's a you, conspiracy, I tell you. I was just about to say that. The way that you then he went make on. sense of things in your head. It's drugs. That was drugs. Uh, or the Mirror Mirror episode, you eventually were happy enough to just go with science, uh, which apparently are two of the same things. And then the other one is just conspiracy theory altogether. Yeah. There, there are three options. No, there's more options, but I just And you think I'm crazy for believing in residual energy and... And spirituality and spirit. I won't walk across four shores. Okay, I don't yeah, call no, anybody that's true, that's true. crazy. <laughs> just like my old friend again. I know, but it was so funny. I don't even remember the poor chap's name, but I did that and you just shouted and I was just like, oh, It God. was Kevin Wayne. <laughs> no. Okay, I think we'll finish up there unless you have anything for me. No. No, no I'm good. All good. Okay. You're trying to read my notes to see if there's anything interesting. There's not. I wrote New Orleans barbecue because that came to mind. Why? Uh, Louisiana barbecue came to mind. It's also a jazz capital. It is. It's massive, massive, massive music capital. And then I wrote Villa Blanc because I liked the name Blanc. And it sounded like Zilla? No, but now, now it does. 
Uh, and then I wrote one and four because first child and then four and then I, I lost count. She after had that. six altogether. Um, she had four, <clears> four with her first husband. Uh, sorry, she had one with her first husband, four with her second, and then one with Jean. Jean-Luc He could be one of the. He could be one of the husbands. No, he couldn't because he wouldn't get killed. No. Oh God, he really couldn't be any part. Imagine if the poor queen played her. And then John Luke Picard was one of the husbands. That'd be weird. No, John Luke Picard would be the brother-in-law. He'd be like, "Don't you come back here." Yeah, he he'd be the one, you know, keeping everything, keeping everything chill. Chill. Right. So say your words and do your eggs and jingle. Let's do it. <laughs> say my words. I have a lot of words to say. Well, get saying. Okay, so I think we'll finish up there. Uh, so if you have any comments on the episode, be sure to DM us on our Instagram. It's What's the Story Ghost. If you have any personal experiences yourself that you would like to share with us by email, it is What's the Story Ghost at gmail.com. I think that's it. Is that normally my. I face out. I wait till you look at me and go, now, do eggs and jingle now. <laughs> eggs and jingle. <laughs> Bye. Yeah.